I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And I'm Andrew Bloom. And we love to watch. We love to watch The Death of a Generation's Innocence. Welcome to the wonderful world of pods. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Andrew. I, I would say it's your first time talking to you, but it's not. You actually have guested on a show uh, that we recorded for our Star Trek uh, mini side off, side shoot, side off. You know, whatever you call those other podcasts, I guess is another word for it. That we recorded back in December. That won't come out until February. So this is going to come out in January. You've done a Back to the Future type situation with yourself. Well, I was going to say, appropriately for Star Trek, I feel like I've used a very circuitous means for time travel. <laughs> yeah, this is the easiest way to do it, is just to not release something later. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, welcome back. It was awesome to have you on Wrath of Khan. And we're having you on a very different movie this week. Um, with we return to Oz, uh, Walter Murch's uh, forty-six year belated sequel, forty-something year sequel to Wizard of Oz. I, I appreciate that I've carved out this niche for eighty genre films. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, it's only like half of what we do on the show. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yes, uh, if you haven't heard us before, where we love to watch, we're a movie podcast. We pick a theme each month, and we do movies around that theme. And this month, we're on our second incarnation of dark fantasy movies, uh, I think from the 80s. My beautiful, beautiful dark twisted fantasy. My beautiful dark twisted fan uh, double fantasy side two. <laughs> yeah, the Yoko side. Side two. But anyway, yeah, no, it's our second week of, of, of this month, and we're doing a little movie called Return to Oz. Which is a movie I hadn't seen until uh, Spooktober 2017. Pete didn't see until I believe the same Spooktober because I was like, holy shit, Pete, you need to see this movie. It's insane. Especially since it's like a kid's movie. It fit nicely into the uh, the burnout of mid-Spooktober where I had watched so many like movies that shocked me in ways that I kind of expected. Heads getting chopped off and violence in general. But uh, this movie shocked me in ways that I never expected. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into this deeper. But it was a movie I'd always heard was like scary for a kid's movie. And like a lot of kids movies that are grouped into like this, this kid's movie scared me more than any horror movie. I was expecting like, you know, a scene. I was expecting, like, you know, like the scary part in The Secret of Nim that people talk about and all that kind of stuff. I was not expecting literally a true horror movie for children throughout. So I'm very excited to get into it. I loved it. I think I think I said it was my favorite movie of that um, spooktober. 
Uh, and I was so excited to rewatch it, and I loved it just as much. And yeah, I'm very excited to talk about it. Uh, we also have uh, Andrew Bloom joining us, who he, I believe he had told us that he had seen it as a kid and had not revisited it. Uh, so, Andrew, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? And then also uh, introduce yourself a little more to to this audience, which is probably the exact same audience, but we'll hear it sooner. Exactly. Well, so my experience with Return to Oz was catching it on cable television. And I realized about some way through this watch that I think I'd only seen half of it. I, I perhaps saw a good chunk of the film starting in the middle. I'd completely missed the setup, which is kind of half the point of this one. <laughs> and at some point, I don't know if I got distracted or I got scared or something happened, but I completely turned it off and or at least it made no other impression on me because it was very clear about half an hour into the movie. It was like, oh, I remember this now. And then about, you know, another <laughs> 45 minutes later, it was like, okay, and now I remember nothing. So I've either turned it off or just mentally repressed everything that was happening. One of the two. I, I think went and hid under the bed is a real possibility. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tell us your history about yourself, being Andrew. Well, I, it, so I've been Andrew for a while now. I feel like I've gotten to a point where I'm kind of okay at it. Um, I, <laughs> I'm Would you Andrew say you're Bloom. blooming? Oh, good lord! There's no, there's no surviving. <laughs> that's the first time we ever have an episode that's uh, five minutes long because <laughs> yeah. the guest hung up on us. <laughs> well, so I, I am Andrew Bloom. I'm a senior writer for Consequence of Sound uh, in their expanded film and TV section. Uh, I've uh, also maintained my own blog, which I have for God. It's coming on, getting, getting to be close to ten years now, rounding out the decade. Uh, I live in Dallas with my wonderful wife and. And my adorable cat and uh, I one day dream of going to a fantasy land where I see strange representations of them in a, a <laughs> sort of bizarre distended setting that teaches me a very important <laughs> lesson about myself and the world and that's don't trust adults yeah <laughs> I, I was gonna say we're, we're coming up here on another 46 year interval so I feel like it's time to complete the trilogy right uh, well oh, they yeah. did do the prequel in 2013. It's true, but it's Oz not the, the same, right? We need, like, an even younger Dorothy and an even bleaker Oz. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pretty soon it's just a baby. Baby Dorothy, they drop into Oz and it cries, then some witch comes and, like, steps on it, and that's the end of the movie. Yeah, we need, like, hard to be a god, but yeah, with, like, a, a fetal Dorothy. Uh, <laughs> but she somehow has pigtails, though. Yeah, but no other hair, so she's like a fucking who. <laughs> the state constitution yeah. of Kansas requires the pigtails. <laughs> <laughs> What's funny is that there are uh, a few uh, Wizard of Oz books and that the author wrote. Uh, I devised a quiz about the series and uh, I think we might answer some of your questions here through the course of this quiz, but I, I just realized that Aaron told me that he doesn't learn anything from no. being proven wrong at quizzes, so maybe not, no. nobody will learn anything. No, I mean, that um, part wasn't part of the show, so no one knows what you're talking about, but yeah, what Peter said oh, is yeah. true. Confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, would you guys like to play a little Wizard of Oz quiz with me? I would. What's funny is that this may be the first quiz on We Love to Watch that my wife would kill at. Like, she would honestly destroy all of us at this. Her favorite movie is The Wizard of Oz. It's her favorite book. She has, like, she's one of those people that has, like, 20 copies of the book, like, different editions of the stuff like that. And she's read all of them. 
Uh, and side note, she hates Return to Oz, but we'll we talk about that uh, <laughs> later on. Uh, I, my, uh, I also did I also did uh, check in with my older sister, um, Natalie, who was so much a fan of Wizard of Oz that she like destroyed the tape. Like the tape played so much that like you have to kill like, the thing you love because before yeah. it consumes you. <laughs> no, like the tape like just was overwatched, and I think the spindle broke or something like, or it faded out. She just said the tape broke. I didn't get uh, hard details on it, and she says she was like, "Oh, oh yeah, the movie with the Wheelers. I fucking hate the Wheelers." Like this is a woman in her late thirties who still remembers a traumatizing experience from. <laughs> 1985 or whatever like it's insane how much of uh how much people remember the details of this because they saw it in an age where they were sucking up all the details of it like a vacuum well also and i think uh well you can talk about this later like this movie in a lot of ways seems designed to hurt people who like the mgm movie some Uh, of that some of that is like accidental in a way that people of the time especially kids wouldn't have understand like well we have the rights to the books but not the movie so we had to change some things uh and we just gave everyone dead eyes because the truest horror of all copyright is, the, MGM. is the dead hand of copyright you know <laughs> yeah i want to talk about that more because even though some of it is just the accident of history and rights and all that fun stuff i don't think you could design a movie that's a bigger fuck you to child fans of the original. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll have to get into yeah. it because the, the 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 stitching between the original and the choices to not create stitching between the original, I think, is mostly why people remember this movie. But we we'll get into yeah. like how it stands on its own as well. Yeah. Um, so the quiz, Andrew, do you want to take this quiz with me as well? I do, though I'm afraid that if I get an answer wrong, I'm going to be turned into like some kind of trinket from pottery barn (laughs) (laughs) it's only if you end each uh question with oz all right so question number one how many oz books are there uh this is to andrew one to five six to ten eleven to fifteen or sixteen to twenty i will guess six to ten official canon books official canon books written by frank Baum. also so that's that's an important part of it Uh, you still say six to ten I think I'm going to stick with my answer. Okay. Uh, you're not far, but it's 11 to 15. It's actually 14 books he wrote. Uh, I have to wow. within wrote the five. He, was, he wrote within the canon, um, and two, I think, were published posthumously. Hmm. So he wrote, like, Dude, up find until something the else to end. write about. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Even C.S. Lewis stopped at seven Narnia books. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't like, oh, yeah, that's, uh, there's the time that uh aslan uh needed to rearrange his room (laughs) (laughs) oh no aslan versus marie kondo Uh, so uh uh zero zero uh aaron this movie is primarily based on two books ozma of oz is the first one and the second one which is one of these uh glinda of oz the Lost Princess of Oz, Marvelous Land of Oz, and D. Dorothy Two Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> I think it's I think it's Marvelous Land of Oz. Uh, that is correct. And I Aaron think that because one. if I remember seeing some of the books my wife has, they all have like the Wonderful World of Oz, the Marvelous World of Oz, the fucking Happy Shake Shack of Oz. <laughs> I, I can swear it says that it's based on those at the end, like early on in the end credits. It could be crazy. 
they they might have directly credited those two. I mean, it's kind of pulling from Garrett. Excuse me. It's kind of pulling from characters and themes from the whole series because Walter Murch was a big fan of the books. And actually, this a lot of people say that this movie is like in some ways way closer to the books than the original uh, MGM movie with with Judy Garland is. Um, yeah, because yeah, Dorothy's the right age. There's not musical numbers like like yeah. I could I could and I think the books are supposed to be a little weirder and scarier. Yes. Um, so, uh, Andrew, the stage musical that <laughs> Frank uh, uh, wrote. Capra. Um, <laughs> Frank Capra wrote. The stage <laughs> musical that was based on Oz that never made it to Broadway was called A. The Buggle Wuggle. B. The Woggle Bug. C. The Bug That Wouldn't Woggle. D. The Musical World of Oz. E. Wumble Tumble. D. Payback with Mel Gibson. <laughs> The wait the director's cut, Peter. <laughs> yeah, the, it's sorry. Payback with Mel Gibson. The director's okay. cut. <laughs> I'm gonna go with the Wogglebug. That is correct. All right. I mean that deserves All two points. But <laughs> <laughs> that, that does deserve two points because I uh, <laughs> for a second I was like, wait, which one actually is it? <laughs> um, all right, it is the woggle bug. They all it all just sounds like nonsense, uh, which is going to be a theme for the rest of the game. Aaron, what movie have we done with Nicole Williams, Nicole Williamson, Nicole Williamson, Nicole? Andrew, you're smart. Is that is that I C O L is Nicole? I would pronounce it Nicole. Would be my impulse, Nicole. but okay, I would it could just it be pronounced Michelle Nicole. Gondry. <laughs> Yeah, Nicole. Yeah, Nicole. Let's go with that. Okay. I think this All right, what movie have we done with uh, Nicole Williamson in the past six months? Uh, multiple choice. Uh, no, just a who, answer. Who? What? What did she play in this movie? Uh, Nicole is a man. I'll give you some clues. Nicole is a man who is in this movie and a movie we've done recently, not six months. Let's say two months. Uh, I'm gonna say I'm to- Spider Baby. I'm about to blow your mind. Excalibur. Oh. He plays Merlin. The doctor and the gnome oh. king are Merlin. Isn't that so weird Fuck. that we did that? Yeah, it was. <laughs> and the whole time I'm like, the whole time I'm watching the gnome king and I'm like, Fuck, that guy looks familiar. I need to remember to look it up after the movie. And I didn't. I'm glad that I was able to catch you on that one because like, I didn't feel bad about giving you like an open, open question one on that because the... Because you last said his name week, last week. And it was, to be yeah. fair, we're recording this on Tuesday. We recorded Excalibur on Thursday. So it's been five <laughs> days. That's even been a full Julian calendar week. <laughs> I, I, uh, but I think that's amazing that we accidentally got two movies from this dude's uh, IMDb back to back. And I'm really happy that the other one wasn't Spawn. All right, uh, Andrew, oh, it's tied up 1-1. One, one. Uh, Andrew, in the 1986 Academy Awards... Uh, Return to Oz was nominated for Best Visual Effects. Uh, It lost to A, Back to the Future, B, Cocoon, C, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, D, Lady Hawk. I'm going to guess Back to the Future. Back to the Future seems like a good guess because it should have won out of all these movies. Uh, (laughs) But no, it lost to Cocoon. Cocoon won an Oscar for visual effects. Yeah, Wilford Brimley. Yeah, <laughs> they he, made he's only look old. How yeah, he, he's only like 50 <laughs> in that movie. Um. Aaron, your question is up. What is the author's name of the series? 
Frank L. Bomb, L. Frank Bomb, Frank Bomb L. Bomb with the bomb to bang and bang, biggie, biggie, bomb. I think his last name is Up Drump the Monkey, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's yeah, where he got the idea is- for the flying monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> it's all coming together. I feel- Up Jump the Monkey. I feel like it's one, it's either Frank L. or L. Frank, and I, I, I'm not going with my gut, and I'm going L. Frank. That is correct. Um, it seems wrong, doesn't it? You know, it, these people with the initial for the first name, I don't care for, personally. Yeah, not a fan. What are you hiding? <laughs> Here's what I think. Here's what I think. If you like your middle name better, just, just forget that. you have a first name. Yeah. I mean, how much can you like Frank? Yeah. He like What, what is the first name? Yeah, Loser what is that? Frank? Frank? Frank. Yeah. <laughs> Lame. Frank uh, that was incorrect. The answer is bomb with the bomb to bang a bang. Um, Andrew. Lawrence. I bet it's Lawrence. <laughs> I bet it's Lawrence <laughs> fucking 1920s dweeb. Um, the Tin Woodman's real name is. Oh, please tell me I have multiple choice for this. <laughs> yeah, the Tin Woodman is a character from the Wizard of Oz series. Oh, thanks for that context. L. Frank Baum. Um, the Tin Woodman's real name is. Bob Chopper, Nick Chopper, Kid Cutter, Harry Hack, Mickey Mincer, Willie Wacker, and June Cleaver. I hope it's Willie Wacker. Because <laughs> that implies that he cuts off your dick. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> oh, please. Gonna go with Bob Chopper? Bob Chopper is so close because it's uh, Nick Chopper. It's, uh, close, but no tin cigar. <laughs> I'm uh, really sorry that I gave you that one I had too much fun coming up with fake names <laughs> for people that primarily chop wood um, Steve Slicer Steve Slicer Okay, Barrel Industrial Logging Company <laughs> <laughs> Nick Chopper 100% uh, sounds like, like one of Captain America's not his best friend like Bucky but like his third or fourth string friend that, that dies almost immediately upon going into <laughs> I battle was I was going to say, Nick! if it sounds like a 1940s name, it sounds like like a Raymond Chandler character. Well, that, Nick like, Chopper, get out of danger. You're like, <laughs> my, old, my old army buddy Nick Chopper called me up on the phone. Okay, so, Aaron. What do you while, think the score is? Uh, it is uh, one to two. Uh, Aaron. We're destroying this quiz. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I came up with hard questions, but I have a really hard one at the end. Um, you got a really well, hard do- one at the end? Yeah, the point here is not that you should know any of this I think stuff. We the need point here is that these books are nonsense. Um, <laughs> so, Aaron, uh, yeah. while Dorothy rides the Cowardly Lion in the parade at the end with the Scarecrow, TikTok, Tin Man, and Gump, which character, dash which actor, but we'll just do, go, go with character, um, passed out from the 110 degree heat? Dorothy, Cowardly Lion, Scarecrow, TikTok, Tin Man, and Gump. Ooh, well, as we know, Gump sat alone on a bench in the park. <laughs> <laughs> totally emotionless, except for his heart. So, points to the Tin Man. Um, no, it was not the Tin Man. This is a trick question because it was the only person not wearing extremely heavy makeup <laughs> or dancing around. It oh, was cool. uh, Dorothy. An 11-year-old. T- an 11-year-old fainted. <laughs> Fun working conditions. 110-degree heat, Feruza Balk fell off the Cowardly Lion because it was so hot in that chamber. Fun, right? 
Well, there was probably a moment where everyone went, oh, Disney shutting down and this movie's not getting released. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's fine. It was just exhaustion. Oh, okay. It's the 80s. No one cares about that. Ah, uh, the wonderful world of child endangerment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Disney so put the- kids in danger? So it's currently uh, one, Andrew, and two, Aaron. But the last question is so hard that I'm going to... Um, I'm going to have it count for five points. Um, Andrew, <laughs> do yes. you want to take this challenge for five points or lose? <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> your money or your life. I'll take I'll take the five point challenge. Okay, cool. What Oz characters has what Oz character has books written in blood? This is all going to sound like nonsense. So be ready. CEO. OXO, Big O, LMFAO, or CTO. So it's CEO, OXO, Big O, LMFAO, or Kokiko. What about LFO? <laughs> Not on my list. I didn't want to make it that hard for him. <laughs> I'm going to go with LOL. No, uh, let's try OCO. Um, that isn't any of them. Do you want me to okay. do the list again? Yes. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm totally going to get this. OXO, I think O-X-O. Is what I uh, That is incorrect. It was CEO. Okay. Really? Um, CEO? CEO. That was probably like, I don't know, hopefully 60 years before the term CEO came out of, uh, existed. But yeah, this quiz was, um, punishing. Here's the thing, though. I think if you look at any fantasy series, whether it's Star Trek, whether it's Wizard of Oz, whether it's Lord of the Rings, where you can't just have, like, some weird elf nymph supernatural creature named Greg. Like, you know, <laughs> like you have to oh, come yeah. up with bullshit stuff all the time. Unless and- it's uh, fucking, um, uh, what's the thing? The Traveler's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. Hitchhi- Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Unless it's like a direct parody and you and you expect this alien to be named like Libglorb, but instead it's Greg. Um, yeah. Yeah, you can't really just just be like, oh, yeah, that race of people that look nothing like humans, they're named the Johnsons. Yeah, <laughs> uh, from the Vermont Johnsons. Uh, you know, it's a, but I it am seeing like a series exotic. that I haven't read at all. Um, but it is nonsense, right? Like the, the the terminology seems insane to an outsider. So I can totally see why this movie feels so random and so strange and like throws you off your game because, like, in a sense, you are just being tossed in in deep water like just like dorothy like you're forced to play catch up just like just like you would if you know you were reading the books for the first first time and then you eventually get used to it here's where i'll give this series a lot of credit and i don't think it's as articulated in the movie uh the wizard of oz the mgm movie but it is articulated i think well in this movie and um even oz the great and powerful the sam raimi movie where it's this idea of oz is like we saw the Munchkin Town. We saw the Emerald City. But there's all this weird shit in there. And this one and, – and I think that's clear from your quiz. I think it's clear from these other adaptations of Baum's books that it has something I really like, which is not like a streamlined fantasy world that they stick with. Like, 
even movies I love, like Labyrinth or The Dark Crystal or, um, you know, Lord of the Rings, like they're like, okay, we have, you know, here's our creatures and we're doing this kind of thing and that's it. And I really, one thing we talked about last year at this time with uh, The NeverEnding Story is one of the reasons that I was so attracted to these movies is that they truly felt fantastical in the idea that everything is there you know there's there's a giant spider and a godzilla and weird wood creatures and uh that's what drew me to the narnia books when i was a kid as well that that it wasn't like trying to create a a fantasy world that was streamlined or pigeonholed into like this is the thing it was just like truly anything could happen and i think that's probably true true of uh, from the little bits you get in all three of the good movies based on his work, my guess is that that's true of his books, especially if you wrote fucking 87 of them or whatever it was. <laughs> and, and and there was a sort of like Lovecraft, there was like canon, and then it got passed off to one author who wrote like another set of books that are like sort of fit in the canon, and then another off- author who was like kind of writing to the tropes, whatever, but you're right. Like there is a trust that you build with fantasy authors that's incredibly intimate, I think, because you're trusting them to not make either of you feel stupid. Um and yeah. that's why I love Stephen King's Dark Tower series and why I also struggle with it is because you're I'm in a sense like he's just got to come up with strange shit for these uh our our heroes to go through. And yeah, in the first book, it's very like grim and serious. But as the series goes on, it gets like really off the wall and batty. And you kind of have to just like trust that Stephen King is going to, you know, march you through uh, to to somewhere good, like march you through to the promised land. Um, Yeah. And when it's done poorly, too, it does get really grating. Like I remember, again, the the Narnia books are a good point of reference because there are seven books that I read and loved uh, as a kid. And I remember, like, by the Silver Chair, which is, like, the sixth book in the series, even as, like, an 11-year-old, uh, I was doing that thing where I was just, like, staring and turning pages but not absorbing anything because it had gone so far up its own ass in fantasy characters. And, like, it just kept doing the same thing over and over that I was, like, had trouble even paying attention. And as a kid, I really liked the way they turned it around with uh, The Last Battle. Fun fact, I had no idea those things were Christian imagery until uh, <laughs> way later when people started talking about it. But um, Good for you. It's just like, oh, yeah, it's cool fantasy shit that my parents let me read. So it's easy for that to turn into like droning and like then they met the three foot uh, feet people and you're just like, <laughs> OK. Like, uh, oh, I don't now I desperately want to see the three foot feet people. <laughs> Are they friends with the one eyed purple people eater? Yeah, just a bunch of feet and dicks <laughs> on the island of very specific fetishes. On the island of Tarantino. Anyways, that seems like a good transition. We're already getting into it. Do you guys want to talk about Return to Oz? Yeah. Let's do it. It sounds... Uh, I was trying to come up with a pun. Yes, let's talk about it. It sounds... It sounds... Awesome. Oh, there, <laughs> there we go. go. Good job.
Peter, you are alternate tagline. Uh, alternate taglines. Um, haven't your children been through enough? Uh, alternate tagline. You will believe a girl can be traumatized. <laughs> you will believe an audience can be traumatized. <laughs> you will believe that you are not getting much sleep tonight as a parent. <laughs> uh, one, uh, tagline. Dorothy flew over the cuckoo's nest. Uh, that's good, right? Three okay ones. Yeah, it is good. Do you have any, Andrew? It's never too late to scramble your kids' brains. <laughs> God, I do want to yeah. pause when we get to talk about the electric shock therapy, because I do have something that will make me sound insane, but you'll have to bear with me. Great. I'm excited to hear that and potentially end the podcast right after. Uh, <laughs> maybe call the police. I don't know. Uh, yeah, so the, the recap of this movie, it really does seem like a dare to hurt people like the first one it starts out and yeah it, it is a sequel to the mgm one but as i mentioned they didn't have the rights so it's a sequel to the story but they had to change like the design of everything to look different and they had to change what dorothy looks like and a lot of that stuff so as a result you end up with a dorothy who's 11 which is closer to the books as opposed to uh, a 17 year old dorothy uh, played by judy garland in the original and you find out that after her experience in Kansas uh, with the tornado taking her house and not returning it, as, as is in the MGM one, uh, everyone kind of thinks she's kind of uh, crazy that she's gone through some PTSD uh, and has made up this fantastical land of Oz. And so her parents or her aunt and uncle so worried about her uh, take her to a child psychologist who pulls out uh, a clock or a, fa- a thing that looks like a clock. With a face that's going to electrocute her brain and make her think better. Sound logic. Yep. When when they're about to do that, uh, we're going to get into all this stuff much deeper. So I'm just going to pass through it for now. Yeah. Let's let's let's. A lot more. There's, there's going to be a lot more to say about this opening. So yeah. So when right when they're about to electrocute her, there's a thunderstorm. There's a helper who helps her break out. They jump into the river together. She escapes on a bed, uh, with and then she wakes up in a dry land, uh, in a puddle. With her chicken friend? Uh, that's a fun little fuck you. Like, oh, you know, last time there was a cute dog. Make you feel better about Dorothy? She gets a talking chicken. Now she gets um, a whiny, uh, complaining chicken. Yeah, she gets a chicken in her 80s. A chicken Ooh. who's a, uh, a, essentially a misogynistic portrayal of what any woman over 50 is. Yeah, basically. <laughs> like just She's whining. She's a chicken, fucking. I tell you. A giant chicken. <laughs> um, so anyways... So she she stumbles pretty quickly across uh, the house that took her there six months ago, but it's been, I don't know, hundreds of years, thousands of years, and everything is decaying. The yellow brick road is broken. She sees the Very Emerald, dark souls. Yep. She sees Emerald, uh, the Emerald City in the distance, but like the fucking like domes on the cathedrals are broken out. When she gets there, everything is turned into a statue. And there are these creepy, like, creepy, creepy motherfuckers called the Wheelers, uh, who have wheels for appendages. We'll get They're what everyone remembers about this movie. She escapes from them. She gets a key. She runs into TikTok first, which is, like, uh, the Tin Man equivalent in this movie. The Tin Man, the Lion, and the Scarecrow all show up, but first she meets, like, three friends. So there's the there's TikTok, who's the robot. Then she meets, uh, pretty soon after that, the, she meets a princess. Who ends up being, of course, an evil princess, locks her away. 
Uh, there she meets Jack Skellington or Jack Pumpkinhead. Um, <laughs> do you think when Tim Burton first watched this movie, he saw that part and was like, oh, God, yes. <laughs> this, is, this is it. He worked at Disney at the time, so he probably saw like early shots and was like, well, I'm going to go home and jerk off eight times, and I, I, then I'm going to work on some art, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got a poem in my head. Out. I got it right. Um, I, but anyway, I was trying to figure this out. When did when did Beetlejuice come out? Because there's the scene where you can see like a sort of proto Jack Skeleton. Uh, that was '88. Okay, all right. So he had time to rip it off. And he uh, also like loved American folklore and shit. Like he might have been pulling from Ichabod Crane, but like the skinniness and the goofy the goofy voice of uh, Jack Skellington and Jack. Pumpkinhead. I can't even remember. Yeah, Jack Pumpkinhead. That's what it is. It's Jack Pumpkinhead and Jack Skellington. Yeah, they look so, the same. Uh, they look the same. They both have uh, higher voices. One is voiced by Brian Henson, and one is voiced by uh, Danny Elfman. The singing voice. The singing. Oh, singing Chris, voice. Uh, Sarandon. Yes, Chris Sarandon is yeah. is uh, the speaking voice. Did you say yeah. one is is Jack Pumpkinhead? The other is Jack the Pumpkin King. They're very different. <laughs> very different. Totally different. Um, that's, they sound like it sounds like the uh, Pacific Rim to Atlantic Rim. Yeah. Like, what is, <laughs> Are you saying the fact that Atlantic the Night Before Edge? Christmas is the asylum version of Return to Oz? <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. So anyway, so he, uh, they escape by uh, stealing her magic power and making the lion equivalent. Uh, so Jack Pumpkinhead is the scarecrow equivalent in this one, and the lion equivalent. We're gonna talk a lot about this because it's terrifying. But it's a moose head that is put on the side of a couch, and then it's a taxidermied head. Taxidermy head attached to, a, and they put yeah, life right. powder on it, and then it flies them away. But then this becomes another of the characters. So uh, meanwhile, they crash land at the place where the. Uh, the it's not the goblin king gnome king it's not even it's not even gnome it's a gnome without the g yeah which is so is that a play on words i don't I understand no i have no I, I don't think gnomes are typically like rock gods um and not like lars ulrich or whatever <laughs> i just assumed that he was from gnome alaska originally yeah <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the king of gnome uh so he uh so yeah this throughout the entire movie we've seen like rocks gain eyes and kind of spy and report back to this king and it's this yeah it's this guy who is the rocks and he's like hey yeah everyone came the emerald city stole all my fucking emeralds and they made their city and he goes hey i have your friend scarecrow p.s i know you've been looking for him uh you want to solve my riddle which is go gas objects in my clutter room (laughs) and and he's secretly a hoarder yep uh, and if you he's a hoarder right, with enough space that everything gets its own table. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, if you guess right, you'll find your friend. But if not, you're going to turn into a piece of clutter, too. Uh, so they all go through this. Dorothy kind of uh, with TikTok's help finds a solution. Uh, and then the, the gnome king is like, fuck you guys. I'm going to kill you all. And he's going to eat them all in this this great sequence. Uh great uh, claymation type stop motions not claymation stop motion sequence and then uh the chicken lays an egg in his mouth and uh you find out why everyone's been like holy shit there's a chicken the chicken's gonna (laughs) because the gnome king is allergic to eggs uh so with that she gets her ruby slippers back she restores the uh the the fairy the good witch 
who has been kept as a prisoner or a ghost prisoner or some shit by the by the evil princess. Uh, they celebrate. She's re- everyone is not turned to to stone anymore. The Emerald City is rebuilt, and she goes back to Kansas uh, to find out that the mental institute burnt to the ground with the doctor inside. So I guess come home. <laughs> and he, he got what he deserved because he went back to get his precious electrical device. Yeah, he, he was so into his electrical device that he burned alive. Uh, and also, I guess they also decided to lock up the nurse at that point. Like, because uh, she goes away to jail. Really explained. Um, so let's ex- let's let's yeah. jump in at the end and also talk about the electric shock thing. Okay, let's so, let's talk about so, the real. Yeah. I agree. So let's talk about the real world stuff, because before you get into the electric shock thing, I just want to say, so the real version of The Wizard of Oz and the real world of version of Peter Pan, you can go all these kind of movies, you know, very common trope, like, was it a dream? Was it real? The real version of Wizard of Oz is like, she hits her head during a tornado and she has this crazy dream. The real version of this is that... She has serious PTSD from the first tornado. Her family is dying. They <laughs> send her off to, like, they don't have any money. The crops are all dead. I guess the farmhands have all abandoned them and went to go work somewhere else. Um, they ship her off to an insane asylum where someone electroshocks her. And then one of two, there's one of three things happens. Either A, Everything after this is a dream because she got electroshocked and got docile and, like, this is her brain breaking. Two, she escapes, drowns in the river, and these are, like, her dying thoughts. Or three, she escapes, hides in the river, hits her head on the rock, wakes up to this thing burned alive and you're just going to go home with us. Like, the three real world – like, it's depressing already. But the fuck, like, the the real story, if you say all the Oz stuff didn't happen and you interpret this movie as a dream, there is not a version of it that is not completely fucked up. Yeah, this movie is a bit of a proto-fight club um, in that it, it, it's one of those movies that... Uh, hey, Peter, I'm, I'm turning off the recording. I think we're done. <laughs> done here. It, it's one of those movies that and, and movies did this before fight club but i'm just making a joke because it was like the least uh classy reference to make it, it feels like a proto fight club in that it was designed to make internet fanboys be like it was all a dream did you know it was all a dream it might have been all a dream because <laughs> the, uh as andrew noted in his awesome essay that I, that we we read earlier um, we will link to as well um but thank you guys as andrew noted um the piece has just running through the entire thing uh notes that are reminding you that this 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 land of oz might all be a fantasy like every terror that she faces was essentially conjured in her mind or is somehow reacting to the fear in her mind almost as a sight like it's either a fight club situation where it's all in her mind or it's a Silent Hill situation where Oz is reacting to her pain and giving her monsters to deal with because of it. Well, um, and it's, it's not just like that was so common. I mentioned Peter Pan because like Peter Pan, the thing is, is like, you know, Wendy is told it's time for her to grow up. She goes to bed that night and she kind of decides, uh, oh, I do need to grow up. Like this idea of staying in eternal youth, youth 
is not great. Look at Peter Pan. And so, like, the worst case scenario of that story, too, is like she had a dream and that dream helped her to realize it was time for her to move on from childhood. Yeah. And, and like the original Wizard of Oz and like this movie, in at least most adaptations, the same guy who plays her father plays Captain Hook. So you have this yeah. kind of continuity between the real world and the fantasy world. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and you can watch any of those movies and go, look. I always like to take it as the Oz or the Neverland being real because it's more fun. But the other interpretation is interesting, too. It's just like there's there's no harm done where in this one, if you take if you take out the Oz elements and say this is just all in her head and she's reacting to the stimuli of the real world as an escape, it's so disturbing. Is it okay to spoil Brazil this uh, this much later? Uh, so spoilers the... for Brazil. Yeah, uh, spoilers <laughs> for Brazil. this came out. This came out the same year as Brazil. We're... Okay, so this movie came out the same year as Brazil. And what's interesting is that Brazil contextualizes the fantasies of a dying, tortured man as being um, as valid as real experiences because to him he believes he actually is you know flying off on these beautiful planes and he's away from this industrial hell um and i would say that about this as well is that like whether or not it's real it's real because to dorothy she has gone through an emotionally transformative experience she feels more heroic she feels more in charge of her destiny yada yada and Yes, the movie is full of abject cruelty, but at least it ends on a positive note. I mean, kind of. I mean, I'm hoping it's a positive note and choosing to not read into it anymore. I mean, uh, they didn't solve the farm issue, did they? No, no. Um, because she, she still thinks she went to Oz twice now. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but I maybe think, theoretically I think she's made peace with it, that she, you know... Oh, because she's go back any time now, so she's not. Yeah, back. exactly. Like I, I think the arc, to the extent of film that is as elliptical as Return to Oz is, has a clear arc. It's her kind of making peace with the PTSD and making peace with what she's been through, and not having to choose to either be in the real world or to hold on to her fantasy world. It's being able to to have one and hang on to the other at the same time in a way that hopefully will allow her to get some sleep and be a help to her <laughs> adoptive parents and. You know, uh, blossoms and posies will follow, but you know, you you can read into the idea that there nothing is actually solved here. We just get some sweet music and a hug and a wink, and so everything's supposed to be good. But I I think at least the intention of the piece is that she's made it through the difficulty that was keeping her up and in some ways tearing her family down. And you're exactly right that she can now exist in those two planes. And I think be a full person in those two planes, whereas before she was awkwardly trapped between them, like sort of sandwiched between them. And she couldn't she didn't have any freedom to move. Right. She couldn't enjoy her fantasy life because she couldn't access it. But she also couldn't enjoy her everyday life because in everyday life they were stomping on her fantasies. Yeah. So and, and, and Aaron, you're totally right. Like. The comparisons to Neverland and Mary Poppins and Narnia and Wonderland, the sort of escapism of children into fantasy is such a crucial part of growing up and becoming a healthy person. And 
that is why let's talk about the cruelty of the movie now that is why the movie can feel so cruel is because this girl runs and escapes to her fantasy world and the fantasy world seems to reject her or at least threaten her at every corner and in that sense it feels like a more like of a grimm's fairy tale or a pan or even like in a modern sense like a pan's labyrinth and those are Pan's Labyrinth is clearly for adults in a modern context. Starting at the beginning, too, I really like the way this movie picks up from the last one. I love it when sequels or episodic TV or, you know, there's not there's not a ton of media that's even able to kind of tell this story uh, just because it, it involves a separation from a first entry and it implies that there needs to be a second or a third entry or something that can do this but i do love the examples and this is one of the best ones of kind of subverting a happy ending of a of a first entry so you know the end of wizard of oz is whether you interpret it as she actually went to oz or whether you interpret it as this was her way of escaping during a traumatic moment She's back home. Everything's okay. She went on a journey. Uh, she feels ready to stand up to the witch or she took on another witch in another world or whatever else it is. And everything is good. And I love the idea of picking up a sequel to something like that. It's like truly dealing with the implications of what occurred in the first movie. As opposed to like, here's a new adventure. It's, hey, you know when you woke up and told everyone about Oz? At the moment, everyone's like, well, that's crazy, Dorothy, but what if you never stopped telling people about that? And what if that escaping to that world when you see the dusty grossness of Kansas be starts to feel like a prison to the point that that's all you can think about anymore? That's a very smart interpretation of where the ending of Wizard of Oz could go. Uh, that doesn't feel like a stretch or doesn't feel like something that's just done for subversion because honestly if the events of wizard of oz were true even if they were true the implications of the real world for someone who is convinced they went to a magical land and they live in the fucking dust bowl and they're kids and they just look at you know all this stuff that's around them that's nothing like the magical adventure you know that that's going to have repercussions and i love when uh art has the ability to deal with the repercussions of a happy ending and subvert what the audience is hoping for. I think that's totally right. And in a sense, this movie feels like a hangover movie for all fantasy movies. Yeah. Where your fantasy life uh, has to have some sort of end with the real world. And kids don't want it to have an end. At some point, your parents have to say, like, like no... I don't give a shit about your castle playground that you've built. Like I need, I need you to do your chores or I need you to go to school. I need you to learn your fucking numbers. I need you to learn how to have good penmanship, yada, yada. And on the other sense, it feels like we've never gotten this movie before. It's both a renunciation. It almost feels like a last Jedi to fantasy movies about kids running off to a fantasy world where it's both renouncing it, where it's saying like, no, that's not how it would work. But it's also saying like, but the fantasy is so viable and so important and so valuable that at a certain point, like you have to just accept the fantasy 
even with all of these caveats. And I, and that's why I really enjoy the movie. I have problems with it, but they're more um, caveats than they are like deal breakers for me. What I find really interesting about it is it, in some ways it feels almost like a deconstruction as much as yeah. anything. It's sort of Oh, like, yeah. Hey, if you found yourself in this situation in both the real world and the fantasy world, it kind of examines the dark underbelly of that. The like, okay, how would people in uh, turn of the century Kansas deal with somebody who claims that she's still hooked on this fantasy land. Like, what would happen there? And at the same time, it's kind of a deconstruction of Oz itself as a fantasy. Like, okay, what if you put a, you know, a scarecrow in charge of this weird world that he never really showed any particular aptitude for leadership or governance or anything? Like, would it be possible for other weird things to take over? And and I think part of the power of the film is not that it's it's not even necessarily a rejection of what the 1939 original did it's just the the echo of it is seeing like okay here is the torn up yellow brick road and here's this place that you view as vibrant technicolor wonder reduced to this mute gray grimy world like everything bright and cheery about taking that trip through the tornado, opening the door into this wonderful, colorful land is suddenly put on the sideline. And in its place is this, this realm that is drained of all life that you saw before. It's seeing the after effects in the real and the fantasy world. It's so affecting. Well, it actually kind of reminds me, it's funny, but it reminds me a little bit of Star Trek, like in the prime directive, like it had an effect on Dorothy but we're also seeing how much damage Dorothy did to the society by visiting there and, like, going on this adventure. Because even though there was some shitty stuff in Oz, like the asshole trees and monkeys and witches, like, there was a there was a status quo that everyone kind of knew the rules of. Good witches, bad witches. Good people that, that follow the good witch and she protects them. And then a bad witch is always plotting and scheming for who knows how long. But, like... That's that's just the status quo. Uh, and then some wizard that everyone is like, we don't know. He's all powerful. She disrupted that whole thing. She disrupted the status quo. And instead of the happy ending that was implied, as you said, Andrew, it's a perfect point. Like he put a scarecrow in charge who had no brain. And at the end was given a, a little more confidence by a con man. But <laughs> I don't know if he's going to. You're right. If, Probably the easiest ruler to usurp in all of history was the <laughs> Scarecrow, um, to the point that this movie implies there was two people that, like, then had their own little alliance of, like, give me my emeralds back and you get the castles and you can have your wheelers and all that kind of stuff. So I like that it's also talking about um, this idea of what what happens after the the human child from earth enters the fantasy land. Like what disruption does that call cause to those people? Yeah, there's, there is a toll to pay. The movie continually seems to find ways to cause pain to the younger audience members or even the older (laughs) audience members (laughs) that like, I, I think they would have trouble doing anything but brooding for Dorothy. Right? Like, because she is the only thing that is even sort of co- continuous. Like, Toto is way uglier 
Toto is like a more of a, a like a rat like he's more of like a rat terrier dog which like my well, parents they, have those they, dogs they probably don't them. have a lot of food to feed Toto yeah yeah like Toto Toto is give not Toto a like, complex <laughs> but Toto is like more of this rat fairy dog and Fruza Balk is a 11 year old she's a she's a baby which makes her so much more vulnerable well and Andrew yeah. mentioned the the Technicolor like switch that's uh I, I noticed that because it, it it is now Technicolor really didn't exist in the eighties, but it's one of the it's one of the only examples I could even I don't I don't think there is another even equivalent of this where literally the fact that the 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 way of processing film or the ability to process film in one way compared to another that changed between nineteen thirty nine nineteen eighty five is thematically important. Oh yeah, like that 100%. is just an accident of history. In a lot of ways that like film techniques change, but somehow that works perfectly into how this movie looks because uh, it's stripping the magic and it's stripping the artifice out of it. And as such, it does feel dusty and grimy. It looks like an 80s movie, but that makes it work when you when you look at it as a direct sequel to the 30s. It's like that's the fantasy. And this is what we're left with. No, it dovetails perfectly with the themes and, and more than anything, just the mood of the film. I feel like that's what grabbed me more than anything. It, as you can kind of tell from the recap, the story just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Things just kind of happen one after the other and cause an effect as it should be it's appropriate for the kind of yeah dream logic of, of this film. There's no rules to it in some ways. Things just occur and you don't know what the rules are in the same way a child doesn't understand the rules of the world. But that 100% works for what they're going for and the sort of sense of alienation and the sense of lostness and the sense of just trying to hang on to something that you've lost that is firmly present in every frame of this film, whether you're in Kansas or you're in Oz. And the fact that you're so right, the fact that you're holding you're trying to hold on to something and it's essentially you're holding on to Dorothy and Dorothy's moral compass and Dorothy's sort of um innocent or you know upright sort of reaction to injustice that is what drives you through because yes you've lost Toto Toto's now a chicken uh you don't have the tin man <laughs> you got the tiktok man you you don't have the scarecrow you have Jack Skellington, you are so... Uh, well, you don't have like the lion, the cuddly lion. You have a fucking taxidermied head sutured onto a sofa. <laughs> and then when he asks, what am I? Dorothy's like, you're just a thing. You're, you're not actually a lion. <laughs> and he's like, good, because it doesn't feel like I can keep together anyway. <laughs> Glad I'll be The last thing I remember was a big boom. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. That's not at all haunting. Death is my only way out. Yeah. Then, he has, <laughs> then he has a little existential crisis while Dorothy assures him that he's not a new a new being. That he, he's just a thing that they're using. Oh, good, because it seems like I'll be dead soon. Great to hear it. <laughs> it is weird how many of the things she's working with are automatons. Like, yeah. it, it, they're not like... Like it's a uh, a TikTok man is a literal robot, like an actual automaton. The <laughs> the the uh, rump gump gump grump gump the rumpless gump. It's it's, it's gump. Uh, it is gump. It feels too close to forest for me to accept. Um, 
We gotta Gump. play that president song again, or the Weird Al parody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would love for you to play Gump every episode. We're now gonna have to reference Gump every episode so that you get to play the song. Gump is a a, a, a risen corpse who has been given new appendages in a Frankensteinian fashion. Yeah, um, and he and let's let's pause on him for a second because. He, first of all, he's so well done. He's my favorite thing about this movie. In a movie, well, maybe the, I don't know. I have a lot of favorite things about this movie. I really love this movie. But when they when he first finds him, there is something. Even though he's the equivalent of a scarecrow, a lifeless thing that was meant to scare people. That's what a scarecrow is. He describes that he was meant to scare away the evil princess, and that's why his mom made him. Here's the thing. The scarecrow had like human eyes because it was played by a human. So it was not when you are just a carved out eyes and he speaks in a really like light touch Brian Henson voice where he's just like, oh, okay, I'm, you know, and then the first thing when you see him is he asks, where's his mom, which is creepy as shit incredibly creepy that is followed by material followed by pulling off the top of his head to to ask dorothy can you look in my head to see if i'm spoiled yes <laughs> it is so fucking unnerving i i don't know if this is a good i know we have a lot to talk about this movie but i don't know if this is a good touching off point to how much scary shit is in this movie because uh, it really is a horror movie, not just based on the themes that we've been talking about, which are really heavy and, uh, you know, dark. I've talked about in the show that, like, how obsessed my daughter was with Coraline and that she watched the Goosebumps movies and she's kind of, like, become this, like, kid who I've, I'm kind of like, all right, well, if you want to watch this movie, let's give it a try. I would not show this movie to my daughter until, I don't know, at least, like, eight or nine. Like, she's four right now. I even thought about it this time. Like, I'm like, well, maybe she could watch this with me. Like, she does. She really likes kind of weird and creepy stuff. But this movie is like, I just, I have no idea. It's the stuff that nightmares are made of. And it's not one moment. It really, when, when I had seen people like in our film group say, oh, Return to Oz fucked me up. Again, I was thinking it was like a moment. And I'd see people say something about the Wheelers. So I, I remember thinking, whatever that Wheeler moment is, is creepy. But it's so much beyond that. It is it is the Wheelers. The Wheelers are these, like, in the same way that, like, people say that spiders scare people because they just move in a way that your brain can't make sense of. I feel that way about the Wheelers. And that's combined with the fact that they make weird animal noises and have, like, head masks on the back of their head and all this other stuff. Uh, then there's see, the- see, it's funny for me because I feel like the wheelers are probably the tamest thing in the entire movie. Like they're they're acrobats I, and they've got I weird agree. costumes. When you first see them, though, I feel I, like especially they had that baby head on the back. Like that's I, true. I was pretty fucking creeped out. I agree that they're they're very creepy and so much so that when Dorothy gets cornered by them, and yes, they have. Okay, so let's describe the wheelers. They yeah. have wheels on the ends of all their limbs. And they wheel around. They cackle. well, and they're on stilts. And like, they're on stilts. And they're so not. They're you abnormal. can't tell they're on stilts, yeah, but like they're like a long. weird bent Slenderman thing, yeah. but on wheels. They have when they lower their head to charge. They have a stone or a baby face or whatever. This sort of like creepy fat face uh, mask on the top of their head, which makes them so much scarier. Chasing and you Dorothy don't realize to try and that it's the back of their head. Like, that's yes. the thing. Because of the way that their body is moving, like, they just put their head up and all of a sudden there's a new head. Like, 
It's very creepy. And then the way that they corner Dorothy in that little tunnel is as intense as any like a uh, slasher movie where the girl is running away from the murderer and he pulls up his chainsaw or whatever bladed device he's got and you're like oh shit she's gonna get murdered she's gonna get murdered like it's as intense as that the only thing that softens that intensity is that we are adults with the metatextual context that they're not gonna murder dorothy <laughs> And that they're actors on stilts. Yes. Like, we, we can, we can after we see them move for a little bit, we can make sense of them as, like, a 35-year-old man in my case. Like, I see how this was done. But it yes. still took... But if you were a kid, you'd be like, all right, Dorothy's done. I uh, Death can happen at any time. I'm really glad that they made this 40-something-year delayed sequel just to murder uh, <laughs> one of my heroes. And then she made... And then she manages to make it through the door. Wait, let's let's do this real quick. She manages to make it through the door. And then she looks through the keyhole that's blocking her and the um the wheelers, which the wheelers have great sound design. They're cackling like an 80s punk like uh gang. Like well, that's the thing. they communicate to each other like fucking the Raptors in Jurassic Park 3. Like, before she gets locked in there, one looks at another one and just lifts its head like a fucking wolf and goes, ah, ah. And it's just like, Jesus Christ. It's so <laughs> creepy. And the she looks through the keyhole, this beautiful keyhole shot. Walter Murch did a great job with this movie, by the way. Um, yeah. If his goal this was is, to traumatize only, children, he did a great job. And it's, it's his only directorial credit. Yeah, because after this, I, I watched some interviews with editor. him. After this, he was basically uh, blocked from making any other movies as a director because either any projects he came to offer, just they weren't biting or the more likely thing that he made a huge fucking bomb with Disney and no one wanted to work with him. Anyways. Um, well, there's so many choice shots in the film, like whether it's the close up on Dorothy's eye and it just sort of conveys the the terror in an intimate moment or sort of the wider shot where you see the wheelers come onto the scene in the background and it gives you that sense of foreboding like you know maybe maybe it's the director of photography but there's a lot of really interesting framing and blocking that he does in the film yes and the way he cuts the movie makes it not feel like a slog despite the fact that it is a bunch of scenes jammed together um but real quick the shot in the keyhole of Dorothy watching the head wheeler yell at her and tell her to bring the chicken out. And he's like, you got nowhere to go. Like, I was expecting him to start throwing slurs at her. Like, it's so aggressive. It is ag as aggressive as a 80s horror movie. Like, it feels like it, it had like Death Wish vibes for me or Class of 1984 like vibes. Like at Precinct 13. Yeah, she was being – if she didn't have a murder robot inside of her little cabin that she locked herself in, Dorothy would be murdered by wheelers. Like yeah. that is that is an interesting thing to think about whereas like in the original movie, you think like, you know, the flying monkeys are scary, but they just really want to capture Dorothy and lock her up in a tower or whatever. Like, yeah. In this, they're like, the, the wheelers might not be able to control themselves long enough to bring her back to uh, Mombi. They might just eat well, you, her. You don't know there's a Mombi at that point either. Yes. Yes. That's the other thing. You don't know that there's a grand plan. You're just like, I am at the mercy of these things. The movie is full terror. Like, and imagine, imagine this exchange if, imagine this exchange if 
the fucking uh, wheelers came out and then in a sort of stagey setting and then they sang a song about how much they wanted to eat the chicken and then Dorothy said like oh no and turned her back and there was another uh, wheeler behind her and then she gets to run you know upstage and um, she puts her oh, hands up in front of her face and yeah and then there's and another then eventually and then, like hits a wheeler like you're just a you're being naughty yeah you are not <laughs> nice Mr. Wheeler man and he's yeah, like I'm, there's I'm sorry there's this weird sense of not. propriety to her yeah, this film, like relative to the other one, where she's like very polite to everyone, and but also has this calm but firm manner with everything. Yeah, and, and yet she like, but because she is clearly a child, like she's eleven, but she looks much younger than eleven. Like you can't help but feel terrified for her in every moment. So you have this Wheeler moment, and I'm like, oh yeah, no, I can see why that fucked people up as a kid. It was creepy for me now. Well, that's probably all the terrifying stuff. And then the next scene <laughs> is where she meets the princess who has taken over the Emerald City Castle. And the first thing she does is go, hey, I'm going to change quick. I'm going to get into something more comfortable. And you find out that something more comfortable is not a new uh, new outfit. Uh, it's a head. She Her closet is a room full of heads that she clearly switches. All the heads are alive. You find out that the statues without heads that you found in the courtyard were taken, uh, where where she cut off their heads so that she can change into different heads uh, to look different. And so that's terrifying, especially because all the heads are moving because it's like fucking actual actors in like a black felt thing or whatever. But it's very creepy. She changes her head. Uh, then the next scene after that is the whole fucking creepy meet Jack Skellington is like, my brains, look at them, they're spoiled. So that's scary. <laughs> and then their escape is making a taxidermist monster with an existential crisis. During that escape, there's a fucking scene from the Evil Dead where they accidentally <laughs> wake up all the heads that scream at them and these blood-curdling noises while the body runs around crashing into things trying to kill Dorothy. It is uh, totally an Evil Dead 2 moment. You're so right. Yeah, and Evil Dead 2 came after this, but that's, like, it is essentially an Evil Dead moment for kids. And it's both comedic in the fact the body's moving around, but, like... We find it funny as adults. If I showed my four-year-old or a seven-year-old Evil Dead 2, they probably wouldn't go, well, that is an over-the-top comedy. They would go, I <laughs> am never sleeping again. And it's that same kind of energy of headless things screaming inhuman noises at this little girl while a, yeah. while a headless monster chases after her with, like, fucking long fingernails and fingers extended to murder her while this movie is essentially a crock pot for mental illness it's like check back in eight years um it's <laughs> like there's just that's like, when we'll have perfected the uh, electric shock therapy <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah then they so get okay go. so i just something I, that i know about electric shock therapy Okay, and this is the thing that I was telling you uh, might be might weird you guys out. You My mother it? is a psychologist. She has never prescribed electric shock therapy, but she has talked about how she has a lot of patients that uh, respond well to electric shock therapy. There is a technical term for it that I'm not sure, like electroencephalograph or something. I don't know. Uh, there's a name for it. Um, apparently, electroshock therapy is not the demon thing that like we pushed off in 1912 it's a thing that they still do they just do it for like very specific cases 
and it actually has like a lot of um good applications for people with depression and anxiety and yeah i've heard that and they still do they still do it and it apparently like is pretty goddamn effective but i think like one flew over the cuckoo's nest and the abuse of it during like the you know whatever 19 tens to the 1970s or whatever whatever the period would be the the high abuse rate of it just basically made everyone turn against it and also the fact that it looks like torture uh but like it apparently is it apparently is a thing you can use you can use effectively and it's so interesting to me that like that that's actually like true but when i was a kid i saw stuff like this or one flew as a cuckoo's nest or whatever and i was like never ever hook me up to one of those things let me ask you a question. Nowadays, when psychologists do it, do they – before they do it, do they like pull out the machine and then try to anthropomorphize it to the patient and be like, look, it's got a happy face. Anyway, we'll see you next week when we have some fun with this bad boy. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't imagine that they make it ask, into a Hold on. Body. Ask your mom. Could you ask your mom that? Ask yeah, I'll, that I'll ask my that. mom if she uh, – if they draw a little face on the machine. Uh, she has never prescribed it uh, personally. But she has patients that that use it, um, and uh, yeah, the it sounds like I would never approach this topic in the way that this guy is like. <laughs> I got this new cute thing. Look, it has a face on it. It's gonna shock you a lot. Anyways, isn't it cool? I got this new toy. Like he's like a gadget bro, just just <laughs> yeah, showing off his cool gear, yeah. and then <laughs> Dorothy is like. Uh, I don't know what that is. I am literally 11 years old. She gets locked into a room that's covered in dust. And then when she gets brought in for her Don't, big don't worry about it. We'll strap you to something while you're in it. Yeah. And she's like, I didn't fall off the buggy on the way here. Um, <laughs> and and that the doctor's like, shit too. your mom said to be a good girl, right? <laughs> like, Jesus Christ. Um, so when Dorothy actually gets strapped into the thing... The moment that they pull the switch, lightning strikes the hospital, thus creating a whole generation of bad film theorists. <laughs> and and the movie immediately uh, is either going into the, a real world of fantasy or a fantasy real world. And I think my brain just broke a little bit. Yeah, I hope it. I, I, yeah, I get an electroshock. <laughs> you know, you know right what now. I could? Yeah, you know what we could prescribe for that. <laughs> oh no don't worry he's got a smiley face <laughs> dude that this... guy like he burned alive for his electroshock machine i'd say there's even odds he was fucking it like he's like i figured out if i stick it up my ass and turn it to seven it's really nice <laughs> <laughs> well there, there's this weird theme in the movie where like maybe I, I could be up a creek here so don't don't take this as the gospel <laughs> everything I but say is up a creek are you in a bed <laughs> are you in a crib <laughs> but there's this strange sense of like oh now we have electricity electricity will solve our problems <laughs> and there is this thing being lost there is this idyllic life where Dorothy's uh, aunt and uncle can no longer get the land to work for them. They can't scratch out a living. You have the industrial age that is coming in and supposed to make everything better, but it's scary and different. And the people who put their faith in it are not necessarily people that you want to put your faith into. And you kind of see the weird 
hangover effect or the weird mirror of that in Oz itself, when it seems like something wonderful has been lost, that there's this different regime that is moving in and tearing things up and ripping up the way things used to be. And it's hard to know if this film is intentionally being a little bit Luddite or if that's something that's in the original novel that they're pulling out, since it would obviously be a more contemporary concern at that point. But it's... Never something that is articulated explicitly, but feels like it's in the undercurrent of the film from the beginning to the end. I think you're right, too, because, like, I think TikTok is a really good example of that, because the first movie had the Tin Man, which is like this steam power guy that needed oil, and he cut trees. Like, in TikTok, we see a much more complicated... Uh, advancement of the woodcutter technology like he has a a brain knob and he has a um, he has an action knob and like one can run out while the other one's still doing stuff and there's like it's a lot more complicated to keep him going uh, than to just put a little oil on him every once in a while and and also let's note here that uh, the tiktok man and having all these characters like replace our characters, our, our old characters, and have sort of stand-ins, right? And then, at the end of the movie, getting to see our heroes from the, the previous movie, and they all look incredibly different. Like, the Cowardly Lion is now on all fours. Uh, he's not an adorable gay man anymore. Um, <laughs> the, the, the Tin Man is like a straight-up, like, cosplay, uh, you know, animated version of the Tin Man. Like, it feels like when you were a kid and somebody got you a knockoff version of Power Rangers as, as a toy <laughs> or something. Like, it feels like you got handed a knockoff toy. And, like, when you're talking to kids, like, the authenticity is weirdly specific. Like, the costumes, the way things look, the aesthetic, the feel, the texture of everything is, like, so specific. Here's what's funny, though. My wife has a lot of the... Not, like, first editions or anything, but, like, early editions. The design on a lot of those books, covers, and and there's a lot of illustrated versions matches what these look like. Which is cool. Because I think it is, like, it is definitely trying to capture something from the original books, Walter. Well, and legally, it needed yes. to. And, <laughs> yes, yes. We and Walter resemble Mer- but are legally distinct from the lollipop kills. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, that's kind of the final nail in something I, I mentioned with, like, why probably your sister and my wife fucking hated this movie so much. Because all you know, it's a sequel to the Wizard of Oz, which is, like, this magical movie that really hit a lot of kids at a young age and like it became a lot of people's favorite movies and i totally get it i saw it when i was four or five and i remember really liking it it was just not a movie that i owned so i didn't have the chance to become obsessed with it because there was essentially no way to watch it if you don't own a movie or rent it obsessively so um but like you know my wife did and it's very easy to see why this could be something that like and if i would have owned it i would have obsessed over but like you find that there's a sequel to it you watch it it's definitely not designed this way but as a kid how could you not come away with feeling that like they took something you love and just crushed it into the ground because it's very dark the happy ending wasn't a happy ending you don't get to see all your good friends Everything is broken in the magical world. It looks, uh, you know, faded and drawn out. And then even at the end, 
when you finally get to see your best friends and the characters that you love, they're these weird, much more eerie, fucked up designs that you don't recognize. Like, how would you not walk out as like an eight year old of this movie going, well, I hate everything about that. Plus, it's scary as shit. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's, I'm not joking when I say like this movie offers very little comfort to a child. There's no songs. And Walter Murch is aware of this. He's like, I think I know why people think this movie is terrifying. Um, <laughs> and, and, and he points to no songs and the fact that Feruza Balk is way younger than Judy Garland. And he's like, Judy Garland was a 17-year-old who had to use a band to cover up her developing breasts to make sure that she looked like a child. Like, there is something kind of fucked up about passing off this 17-year-old who was on MGM studio contract as a child, despite the fact that Judy Garland is a treasure and she could hit all the notes and yada yada. But um, the Walter Murch is aware that all this shit is terrifying. But, like, I honestly think this movie, like, needs to be sorted more with, like, the Pan's Labyrinths of the world. I think it needs to be sorted with the, like, adult fantasy of the world. Because, like, as Aaron noted, I would not fucking show this to my children. What's interesting to me is it doesn't feel that far removed from movies like Labyrinth that came out at the same time that are sort of these little child gets lost in the fantasy world movie. And there's certainly some softening of the edges in other contemporary films, but I feel like particularly around this time, there was this sense that kids could handle it and it was going to be weird and it was going to be a little dark and maybe even a little disturbing. But you know, even with the Disney logo on it, people were kind of like, yeah, it's, it might screw up your kid, but it'll be good for building character. It's worth noting, and I think maybe this is part of the contrast between where Oz is when Dorothy returns to it and sort of what happens when she manages to revitalize it with the defeat of the Gnome King. There is a sense that when you compare TikTok and Jack Pumpkinhead and Gump to the revitalized Scarecrow and Tin Man and Cowardly Lion, the latter three feel a lot more cuddly, almost like living stuffed animals. And there's something a yes. little bit grotesque uh, to them because they're not, you know, Buddy Ebsen and, and the characters that we knew, or at least not as we saw them 50 years ago. But by the same token, there is this same sense of like, oh, yeah, no, these are the things that you hug and love and that represents that warm familiar. And I, I assume it's budget related, but it also feels like an intentional choice there to be like, here's the theme of not letting go of those childhood things and not letting everything be swept away. And we're going to convey that visually with our, our design in terms of production and our design in terms of characters to, to drive home that idea. And I, I mean, I don't know if it's a betrayal so much as it dovetails with what the film means to do in that last act of kind of giving you that salve after all that grimness and alienation that you get for god 90 minutes before anything kind of happy happens in this thing i just think the designs are so close to the original illustrations in the books i i think there's two ways to look at it one i just think it was well i think there's probably three ways to look at it one it's again they they can't look like they do in the mgm movie but they have the rights to the books this is before the wizard of oz books were in the public domain so to make sure everything's above board, they don't get sued. They make them look exactly like the illustrations in the book. But those are illustrations from a children's book 100 years before this. So they look a little off. 
Uh, two, I like they do it for rights issue, but also, as you mentioned, Walter Murch. Uh, really loves those books. So he wants to make them look faith. He's trying to do a faithful recreation of what they look like that was different than what they did in the MGM one. But I think thematically it actually works well to kind of add a level of melancholy to the ending. And again, I, uh, this was very clearly not probably intended, but I, I love that. Like, even when we finally get our friends back from the first movie, like, they just, they don't look the same. Like, there is something about you you can't go home again. And, like, your memory of this Technicolor paradise, even when everything comes back to life, looks different. That works for me thematically. And I will say, I am surprised with how much they um, they do to scare kids in this movie. That when they show everyone coming back to life and stop being statues... They didn't cut to the headless people coming back to life just so the headless bodies could fall over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that like if the movie had uh, more time and maybe like this was a collaboration between like fucking Walter Murch and Terry Gilliam, like would the movie – would adding comedy to the movie um, or adding one of the – more of the Henson people even and making it more labyrinthian – um, I know that means something else, but in do you think Brian sense, Hansen I mean, was having a fight with his dad? Like he's like, I'm gonna make Labyrinth. He's like, Fuck you, Dad! I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna go into go my competition. own Wonderland movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, his dad won. Um, but his uh, <laughs> the movie is so it, it it has so many treats. I think for viewers that are above the age of ten, twelve. Um, you can appreciate it as this very weird fantasy tale. The way that, like, I feel like Neverending Story is a good comparison point. Yeah. Because Neverending Story also feels like a kid's movie that was not made for kids. And as a kid, I did not like Neverending Story. My my mother turned it off during the horse drowning scene and I never saw it again. Um, I would have done the same to this movie if it had been a TV staple. But this movie has so much going on for it. Um, there's so much, there's so much beauty in Walter Murch's sense of direction. Like the fact that he knew so ably to shoot Kansas, not as a hellscape that she would never want to go back to. But like the but Grapes it, of Wrath. Yes. Yes. It's, it, it does have a plain beauty to it. it. It almost feels like being there. Like it has like an English beauty to it. The way English people, uh, will drink on a very subtle tea and a very subtle scone, and be like, oh, I had a, I had a, a fucking party in my mouth. Um, <laughs> they're just a they're just a subtler people. Uh, Walter Merge is not British, but this does feel like the, all the Kansas scenes were so- shot with that sort of eye. Yeah, um, I think what you just said will make sense to everyone. Yeah, um, for sure, for sure. Uh, for some reason, I was when I was watching the scene, I was like, this feels British to me. There's a sort of hazy fog over rolling hills. Well, people look sad. Yeah, they all look sad. <laughs> it's it's funny because I think my mental reference point for the Kansas scene, and maybe it's just a little girl talking to her, you know, elder surrogate parent as they wander through the the plains, was uh, Anne of Green Gables. I don't know if you guys. Have oh seen yeah, that. yeah, I have. Yes, similar feel. It does. Yeah, I was kind of expecting to hear if you build it. <laughs> <laughs> but there's not cornfields there's not it doesn't yeah but it's still sort of, it still kind of has that open dusty 
Yeah. Like, Dorothy, what's going on? He told me to ease his pain. <laughs> <laughs> Who told you that, Dorothy? <laughs> uh, whoever that was, leave him alone. Yeah. Or like my other reference point for the movie, and I think this fits the theme of kids' movies for adults, is Spike Jones's Where the Wild Things Are. Oh, yeah. Very much about going to this weird sort of different land. It's about growing up and trying to understand how different adults respond to different things and how different parts of the world affect you. It has these sort of nonsensical developments and doesn't have a linear plot. But it's doing a lot of things that set a mood and set these themes that the adults in the audience are going to get and really, I don't know, really gets you in a different way as an adult than if you would see it as a kid. Yeah, that's a great call out because Where the Wild Things Are got a lot of um, got a lot of praise at the time, I think, for being a movie that they don't make anymore, which is like a uh, ostensibly a kid's movie because it features stuff that in theory kids would like, but done from the perspective of an adult looking back on childhood. Yeah, and Where the Wild Things Are, I feel like, is a movie that was Spike Jones, who, and he mentioned this in an interview, Spike Jones, who had sort of a troubled childhood, talking about how this movie will definitely speak more to the kids with a troubled childhood than it will speak to the kids who have had a very normal healthy childhood where they're playing baseball and having a good time and occasionally they get sad because their parents say no and that that is um very much where the wild where the wild things are very much fits into the same dynamic that this movie fits into that never-ending story fits into they're clearly addressing some sort of trauma there's some there's some sort of pain that the kid is going through just to kick everything off. Well, but I think that some of that pain is also just the pain of being an adult and looking back on your childhood from even even a good childhood or the good moments of like it's it's the old adult adage that turns out to be very true like you spend so much of your time as a kid wanting to be an adult and wanting to have like this measure of freedom both uh in like what you can do but also this idea of financial freedom like if i had all the my parents clearly have money if i had money i'd get all the toys i wanted and stuff like that and so you spend i think so much of your childhood and all, all the while your adults are telling you like enjoy this time you're gonna miss it when you know you have to fucking go to work and do all this adult stuff all the time and um, so I think there's just a natural melancholy when you look back on your childhood of, of thinking about like it's a, it's an old saying, but it's true. Like most people truly don't appreciate their like childhood while they're having it. Youth is wasted on the young. Yep. Yeah. And that's yeah. And that's I think when you look at where the wild things are and you look at Return to Oz, P- fuck, go back to Peter Pan. A lot of those movies are about the pivot point of when these characters have to leave their childhoods behind and turn towards adulthood. And with that comes leaving behind your imagination and these like things that you can still believe are real that you're just not going to anymore. I mean, I I remember being a kid and playing with fucking Legos and action figures and like I didn't think they were real, but I had this whole 
you know, elaborate plot that would continue for years and years and stuff like that. And like I, as a kid, always assumed that I would keep doing that as an adult because the concept of me like losing that desire to create these imaginative worlds didn't like how how would I ever not have fun spending all day creating these these Lego uh, the pirates fighting the space people? How could that not be the best thing in the world? And then, you know, slowly you just have less and less fun doing it, and it doesn't serve as an escape anymore. And then pretty soon you, you don't remember that last time. All of a sudden they're just gone. And most people like myself, Peter and I were talking about this recently, like I didn't keep any of that stuff because I never even thought of like, oh, I'll go back to that as a nostalgia thing. So there is that point of like, you're just done with your imaginative worlds in at least some respect. And I think it's not surprising that these... Uh, you know, especially like artists and filmmakers and those kind of things that are naturally still maintain a level of imagination and creation that don't look back at that point and still probably yearn a little bit to go back to the point where it probably came a lot easier for them. And then they didn't have to be critical of their own artist creations as well, which is like the burden of doing anything as an adult, as someone who listens back to my own podcast can say. <laughs> like it's like oh why did i say um so much or there was a better point i could have done like you know this is this is like a creative outlet in the same way that playing with toys was for me and peter i'm sure and andrew i would assume your writing is the same but but there is like that idea of just just being able to have fun with it and to just never go back and go well that was a dumb story i created for my dinosaurs I need to do better next time. Like there was a freedom <laughs> in the imagination that just doesn't happen once you hit a certain threshold. There's a self-consciousness that becomes very hard to escape. When you are at that age and you let your imagination run wild, it's not that people don't ever feel shame when they're children, but it's yeah. <laughs> it's a different kind of shame. You're not worried about how you appear or how you present yourself in the same way. It's much more just hey, this is what I've come up with and I'm going to run with it. I don't really care what other people think because I'm four years old. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. a purity to that. Yeah, and I'm going to be done with something when I'm just bored with it, not because like I feel like I can't continue it or overwhelmed by it or any any other reason that like it's hard for adults to continue like an artistic endeavor. Uh, yeah, because that fantasy land needs to die, right? It needs to go to ruin as soon as you reach a certain age and you have a day job and you have uh, responsibilities that are occupying your your, your whole mind. Um, of course, that, that space needs to die. Like you understand, I totally understand why people don't have creative side hobbies because it's hard <laughs> There's a lot of shit going on with your life. Like, and sometimes it can feel like one extra thing. Um, but if well, you it can be hard. It feels it, it, very, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, and it can just be hard for you to lose yourself in it. Like that's, yeah. And I think that's what this movie's saying. Like Dorothy is still able to lose herself in her fantasy world as a way to cope. And while I wasn't coping when I played with action figures, like I was able to totally lose myself in like, taking on the personas of each character as they enacted some plot I was creating. And, you know, the real reason why you stop is at some point you're like, oh, I'm not actually this G.I. Joe. And what does he say to that? Like, you just, you lose it. You really do just lose it at some point. 
Yeah. And that's what makes movies like this so beautiful is because, like, I think it's not just pure nostalgia. It is about reconnecting with that part of your brain that you have let to rot. And in a sense, like the Emerald City, like that part of your brain has been left to rot. Adulthood can, like, yeah, push all that shit off to the side. But if you eat enough eggs, they're brain food, they're good for you, and they'll restore everything. <laughs> I, I want to know, like, See what... those egg council creeps have gotten to you, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, anyways, any other final moments that we didn't get a chance to talk to before we do final thoughts? I know uh, I, I could probably just sit here forever and just say this move and highlight fucked up parts. Actually, that would be my last uh, moment before we get to final thoughts. Uh, also creepy as shit, like, we didn't mention TikTok. Uh... In in the break between the Wheelers and the Headless Witch, TikTok's origin story is that like, oh Dorothy, great, I've been, I was yelling, I I know who you are, I was yelling your name for help, and she's like, what do you mean? Well, I just knew about you, so I just was screaming Dorothy until all my batteries ran dead. It's like, oh, so this <laughs> guy just sat there screaming a name for God knows how long until he essentially died. <laughs> For help because his kingdom was dying. Like that's fucking horrifying. Like everything is horrifying in this movie. Oh yeah, it's a it's a movie that's essentially like a trial for the soul. It's a trial for your your own nostalgia for the past. Like it's a trial for your own fandom for the original movie. Like there's there's a lot going on here that feels like it's just there to either add a sense of cruelty or. Um, put children through some sort of trial. <laughs> Andrew, any uh, any moments that we missed that you wanted to call out? Uh, I guess one small moment would just be the the one use of the ruby slippers when they emerge oh. from the rocks beneath <laughs> yes. the Gnome King, where it's, it's discordant, but in a way that's, again, really effective for what's going on. You're like, oh, this like kind of full-grown man rock person is also wearing these <laughs> ruby slippers? throws you off but in a way that it, i think is supposed to throw you off it felt very mighty boosh to me um <laughs> actually because that would be a total mighty boosh move to have like a dude in weird face and body makeup and then just to have one weird body detail like like oh <laughs> but i always got my ruby slippers like that that felt very <laughs> mighty boosh to me and that it made me laugh a lot harder but yeah it does it does kind of make sense where he'd be like everything about me is gray and flat but this is something that's going to catch your eye like i know exactly what you want dorothy um that's amazing because like i love kids stories about like temptation and like Trying to, like, draw kids into the story by being like, hey, this thing you fucking want, it's right here. All you got to do is give me everything I want. Because that's, like, that's actually, like, uh, emotionally grabbing for adults and kids. Like, the one thing you want, I've got. You just have to become evil. If you just sacrifice your friends, you can go home and you'll forget all of this. And it just so happens that I'm played by the same guy who is in the real world threatening to make all of this go away <laughs> yeah i have no final scenes um i i really don't i i think that we've really dug in on this movie that is two hours i do want to talk briefly about walter merch walter merch is a academy award winning sound editor um film editor and his 
kind of respected among like any film types as one of the great revolutionaries of sound and film editing. And he's sort of someone who bounced around a lot and like tried to um, make a stamp on how people directed film. And he also like, but in the other sense, like he very much like Francis Ford Coppola and Scorsese and Lucas felt like the success of their movies like Apocalypse Now and The Godfather and Star Wars and Raging Bull were a straitjacket in the sense that once they had performed those duties, they weren't allowed to do anything else. And this was Walter Murch taking a big fucking swing. And because of that, uh, after this, people were like, eh, just go back to fucking editing movies. Like, we we like you in the back rooms after the movie's done. We don't like you actually making creative visions. And that's a real sadness that this movie bounced off of cinemas and bounced off of critics so poorly because it is a genuine vision from a true genius, an artist that, like, knew what he was doing. And any parts that are compromised feel like they were kind of compromised by the studio. And because of that, I I think this movie is so worth remembering, so worth revisiting. And not just because it's a weird artifact of 80s cinema. I think it's worth revisiting because it's a genuine artistic vision. It doesn't look like any other fantasy movie. I'm comparing it to Neverending Story and Pan's Labyrinth and, and uh, Where the Wild Things Are, Andrew compared it to, which is a brilliant comparison. But it's not what it actually is. It's, it's, it is its own thing. Um, yeah. And I love Walter Murch for bringing that to us and for us to get to revisit it as a little oddity. But I wish it had done better and I wish Walter Murch got to bring us more things. If if you go back to our Spooktober episode right after watch this, I kind of talked about how in love with this movie I, I was. And that's that's held true now about a year and a half later. Like, I really do love this movie. And it's it's because, you know, it, it does deal with a lot of themes that I find, you know, personally uh, both resonant and interesting. I love that it takes this classic and tells a very logical extension of what happens after that story that we all know in this very, like, entertaining but also, you know, disturbing way. Uh, I love how visually stunning it is and how truly scary it is. And I think just also there – it is so rare when you watch one of these, like, like loved cult movies from the 80s, especially one that's, like, in theory targeted towards kids. And a lot of times I think you can watch them go and go, oh, yeah, that's that's interesting. That's pretty good. But you, you, you always – I think if you miss some of these boats when you're a kid, it's very hard – to watch one as an adult and not feel like some of the praise that you've heard heaped on a movie is some part of nostalgia. And this, I guess in this case, it's not so much I heard praise heaped on the movie. Although I guess when someone says this movie scared the shit out of me, to me personally, that sounds like praise. <laughs> like <laughs> that sounds like an emphatic endorsement. So, you know, I, I took it as something that like I was going to see, some 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 moments that would scare a seven-year-old. And instead, I saw moments that disturbed a 34-year-old at the time. So, 
I just really fell in love with this movie and I think I like it more. It's probably not a better movie, but I think I, I do like it more than even The Wizard of Oz, the 1939 movie, which I really do love and I've seen countless times, especially because that phase in college where I, you know, kept shit watching the first 45 minutes uh, synced up to Pink Floyd. But uh, this really is a movie that I absolutely love and something that, you know, while it's well, it definitely is too scary for my daughter now. Um, I'm I'm very excited to show this to her because this is just such a weird, amazing movie that I think is is like aching to be rediscovered as more than just a movie that fucked you up in your childhood. Andrew, what are your final thoughts? Yeah, so so I I 100% agree with that. I think you know, this was something that again I had sort of had a very brief experience with that it kind of glanced off at me and. Coming here 20 years later, probably more, it's a very different experience. It doesn't glance off of you. It sticks to you. And I, I found it sticking in the back of my mind ever since I watched the movie. I think that speaks to, to what you talked about, Peter, and that is it's a big swing. It's an ambitious film. It's doing something that feels very reflective of a particular view and a particular style. I think you can even just see that in the way that the creatures move in the movie, that everything is a little bit off and a little bit distinctive, whether it's the, the long-armed wheelers or the click-clack movements of TikTok or the pulsating head of uh, Jack Pumpkinhead. You know, there's just something very distinctive about the movie that keeps you kind of glued to it from the start to the finish. And it's not something you can say about a lot of movies. It, it, you know, you, again, you can make these comparisons, but it does feel like a, a thing unto itself that is going for something you don't really see elsewhere, even where there are comparators. And that's that's at the end of the day, all you can kind of ask for for, for yeah. movies, especially for people like us who watch a lot of movies. You're like, show me something <laughs> I haven't seen before. Show me something that I haven't uh, just felt as an extrapolation from something else I've already seen, even if I can enjoy those movies and enjoy seeing familiar formulas done really well. It, it feels rarer the older I get to see something that feels like a breath of fresh air, especially one that, that came 30 years ago. Uh, and so I, I guess my, my overall final thought is I don't want another movie like Return to Oz because it feels like a thing unto itself that I, I don't need to see duplicated. But I wish there were more movies that tried to do the sorts of things that Return to Oz does and just being weird and being distinctive and being unique and letting it be its own thing. So it does stick with you like that. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. And, um, you know, it, I think you're right because it is – we live in an age of sequels, which I actually don't have that much of a problem with. I'm not one of those people that goes, oh, another sequel, because they, they make a lot of good ones. And I like I like my best friends continuing their adventures like in, in other movies. But I think you're right that in all these sequels that we see, we I don't I can't think of another example that tried to take a sequel to a property with this much like ca uh, cultural cachet and really try to do something different uh with it that, that audiences wouldn't be expecting but makes a logical sense of a continuation of the story and i would like to i would i would love to see more of that that goes you know that does the the zag where you can zig and zug where you can zag but anyways andrew thank you so much for for joining us for the first time on we love to watch uh we hope you will come back to 
to this and many other casts we will start uh, in the future again. <laughs> uh, what do you have to promote? Uh, so I, uh, what I have to promote are, uh, again, please check me out at consequenceofsound.net, uh, where you can find expanded TV and film coverage of uh, lots of classic films and television shows in addition to what's coming out right now. Uh, you can also find links to all of my writing from across the web, including my companion piece for this podcast episode, at my website, which is theandrewblog.net. It's three words, theandrewblog.net. You can also find me on Twitter at the Andrew blog. And guys, thank you very much for having me. I would certainly be back anytime you ask. And, uh, you know, you can always uh, tap on the mirror and send me a wink and I'll be standing there <laughs> holding my chicken and waving. Excellent. <laughs> uh, yes, we've we have had such a blast uh, hanging out with you and we can't wait for your next appearance, which has already been recorded. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, and then your next next appearance, which we haven't recorded yet, but it's uh, it'll come around the bend. Uh, yeah, def- and definitely check out uh, Andrew's articles. Um, I-, I had read a few before. Actually, reading uh, reading some of his articles that you had posted in some of our film groups was one of the reasons that uh, when you had signed on for the Star Trek episode, I was so excited because I was like, oh, yeah, he was kind of in a short list in our heads of people to reach out to at some point anyways. So this was uh, this was perfect synergy. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, uh, his writing's great. The stuff on – not just on the stuff that he appeared with with us. But I would definitely, I would definitely take a look. Peter, we have two more eps talking about in the company fantasy. of wolves, which is just us two, and time bandits. I think, it, I think it's the company of wolves, and I'm glad you did that because I've done that so many times. It doesn't help that like the directors of both are named Neil. Yeah, yeah, not good. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's it's the company just company of wolves. Of wolves. Yeah. In the Company of Wolves, I imagine it was a much darker t- uh, take on whatever yeah. horror movie. We <laughs> In the Company of Wolves of Wall Street. Yeah. Are just sandwiched uh, by misogyny. Um, <laughs> but I love Wolves of Wall Street. Yeah, they Wall Street. mentally Jesus. destroy Little Red Riding Hood in, in the Company of Wolves. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we're going to end the month on Time Bandits. Time Bandits. And then do we want to announce next month's theme next week? Yeah, let's do it. Let's save it for next week. We okay. got a we got a definitely an off kilter one, so we're excited about that. Uh, but yeah, time bandits. I haven't seen that movie in a long time, and I remember loving it. So that's where um, I'm at. Let's uh, let's avoid talking about anything that Terry Gilliam said in the last couple of years, and just enjoy the John Cleese and other other fantastical historical people they meet yeah i like to treat terry gilliam as like just a sweet old man and you could just like pat him on the head and be like oh sweetie stop it he is a uh yeah he's a sad old man and we're just gonna we're just gonna let him fade out okay because he can clearly not keep up with a diverse marketplace uh, i'm sure we'll talk about it on the episode but uh yeah but still very excited to revisit the movie um, yes. So, and with that, we we've been bid talking you. for three hours. We yeah. we should be able to come up with a way to end this, right? Yeah. Bye. I hope your story we'll, we'll, is never ending. What? We'll see you on the other side of the rainbow. Yeah. There we go. Perfect. Good night. <laughs> night. And so it goes. A man grows cold. Some would say a man grows strong. They say life only grows short. I say the road only grows long But as long as there's a road My feet will never touch the ground 
And if you won't give my heart back, I've no need to stick around. folks thanks for listening to we love to watch thank you so much for listening to our show and we've got just a few quick announcements for you there ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs baby if you'd like to talk to us uh tell us we're stupid tell us we're beautiful the quickest way to get to us is our facebook group facebook.com slash we love to watch or our website, wltwpodcast.com. Leave us a comment. Tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, we don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available if you don't use iTunes. We're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, Tune in. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, Let us know what you guys are thinking. And again, above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch.